0: I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Tuesday, September 11th, 2018, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. September 11th, a solemn day in this country, this city, this state, on a presidential level. Donald J. Trump tweeted, quote, 17 years since September 11th, exclamation. Also, 16 and 15 and, yeah, whatever. Confused emoji. On a state level, the New York Post marked the solemnity of the day by running the headline, Cynthia Nixon slammed for running campaign ads on 9-11. Now, I know two things about Cynthia Nixon's TV ad buy strategy. One, she does not have enough money to run campaign ads, at least in New York City, which is the city where I and almost all of the voters live. But two, if she did have enough to buy an ad in, I don't know, Utica, the New York Post would definitely rip her for it. When did political ads on September eleventh become some sort of assault on all that is decent? By the way, I checked out the Fox News Channel and Fox Channel 5 in New York, like the Post, owned by Rupert Murdoch. They're airing political ads today. Politics is a tough business, but Cynthia Nixon, in her run for governor, the primaries on Thursday, I gotta say she has been really given the shit end of the oscar statuette by the way i did not realize she is one oscar away from an egot maybe she's going for the version of the egot that is comprised of the awards grammy tony elected office another thing she's going for or maybe reaching for or maybe hoping that we voters go for is this line in that one ad that is hardly running anywhere but that is being slammed I love New York. I've never wanted to live anywhere else, but something has to change. She knows she'll have to move to Albany, right? I mean, it's New York State, but I don't think that's what she means. The polls show that she is far, far behind. Her opponent, the governor, Andrew Cuomo, has so much more money than Cynthia Nixon. He uses it to send out flyers, sometimes with truly inaccurate claims. One flyer that was sent out not by his campaign, but by his supporters, talked about Cynthia Nixon's anti-Semitism, which was news to her Jewish wife and children. And another one that was sent out directly by his campaign with her endorsement had the words, Cynthia Nixon, on her qualifications, I'm an actress and a director. Out of curiosity, I looked up the original Daily News article that was the source of that quote. So she was asked, hey, what leadership qualifications do you have as an actress? And she said, well, I'm an actress and a director. And as a director, you have to manage teams and groups. Anyway, that's how a lot of people would answer such a question until it was weaponized in a campaign ad. Item number, I don't know, 112 about how Cynthia Nixon has really been maligned these last few months came today. Let's call it Bagelgate. Cynthia Nixon defending the unusual bagel order she placed on Sunday. As you can see in this video, shot by the Gothamist website, the actress and candidate for governor of New York ordered a cinnamon raisin bagel with cream cheese at a Manhattan deli. Sounds good, right? Well, she didn't stop there. She added red onion, capers, tomato, and lox. For the uninitiated, that's smoked salmon. For the uninitiated, lox is smoked salmon. If you don't know that, you're not voting in the New York Democratic primary. Okay, Cynthia Nixon kind of gets the wrong kind of bagel that goes with that order of locks. A little embarrassing, but Andrew Cuomo ordered a bridge to be opened too soon to impress us voters, and because it has his dad's name on it. The Mario Cuomo Bridge will open to traffic on Wednesday, weather permitting. It was supposed to open Saturday, but engineers put that on hold, saying the nearby Tappan Zee Bridge was actually in danger of falling as it was being taken apart. Inspectors now say the old bridge is damaged but stable, and if it fell, it wouldn't threaten the Cuomo Bridge after all. The New York Times headlined today, ahead of the primary, Cuomo administration offered sweeteners to get new bridge open. The event was one in a parade of infrastructure-related achievements he has touted as the September 13th Democratic primary against Cynthia Nixon has neared. I'll quote from the Times article. The event was one in a parade of infrastructure-related achievements he has touted as the September 13th Democratic primary against Cynthia Nixon has neared, but the bridge over the Hudson River did not open as planned. Engineers worried that a potentially dangerous situation had developed involving the neighboring old Tappan Zee Bridge, which had destabilized and threatened to impact traffic on the new eastern span of the Mario M. Cuomo Bridge. Yes, impact traffic by actually having an impact as it fell on traffic. So none of that's good. That's pretty bad. And yet here is the thing. I think I'm going to vote for Cuomo. He's been a B minus to B plus governor. I think I'll get from him B minus to B plus policies. I like the policies. I don't like the D minus campaign tactics. But Cynthia Nixon, she could be a breath of fresh air. But she could also be someone who has no idea which committee to lean on to get the Tanawanda Town Council to sign off on approvals for an infrastructure project. Who knows? She didn't run for city council. She didn't run for state assembly first. Nope, right to the governorship. I hate that. I think government is serious business, and we need someone with expertise in there. Or at least someone who has some experience in a large organization that maybe resembles government. But Mike, what about Hillary Clinton? She didn't have actual elected experience before she became senator. But Mike, what about Michael Bloomberg? When he ran for mayor, he was in the private sector. No government experience. Aren't you a hypocrite? Well, guess what? I didn't vote for either of those candidates the first time. Rick Lazio. Oh, yeah. And Mark Green got my vote. But Mike... Weren't you wrong in both cases? Yeah, I kind of was. I voted for both of them for re-election after they proved themselves. I think you have to prove yourself a little bit with something other than just your ideas. I really don't know what to do. I'm open to your suggestions. You have two days to tweet to me or email me with a succinct reason why I should or shouldn't vote for Cuomo or Nixon. By the way, this is the first time in my life that I am a registered Democrat. I always thought it was more important as a journalist to register as an independent, even if that meant auto disenfranchisement in the New York state primaries. Thank you, Mr. Trump. You changed that. So tweet or email me. I will not be swayed by any bagel related reasons. On the show today, I spiel about anxiety on this anxious day in this anxious land. But first, he is an activist, a podcast host, and now an author. Pod Save the People host DeRay McKesson is here on the other side of freedom. (music) DeRay McKesson is, well, I'm reading from the flap of his new book, on the other side of freedom, The Case for Hope. He is a civil rights activist, community organizer, and the host of Crooked Media's award-winning podcast, Pod Save the People. This is exactly backwards from how I know him. So I remember during the Ferguson protests, he seemed to be, well, he definitely was on the front lines and making some of the best cases, started following him a little bit on Twitter. And then when Pod Save America came along and there were these uh, three or four white guys, I said, okay, what about diversity? Bang, they get to Ray and I'm like, that's good. He's a great guy. And now he's out with this new memoir slash prescription for America. It is The Case for Hope. Hello, Dre. Thanks for coming in. It's so good to be here. Policing, tangibly, you write all about your journey and you write about American society, but policing is at the center of this book, and it's also how... I got to know you and how you became an activist. Would you say it's at the center of your work in terms of civil rights?
1: Yeah, I think it's what brought me into activism in this way. I used to be a teacher. I taught sixth grade math, which is by far the most incredible thing I've ever done. It was the death of Mike Brown and understanding policing better and the problems with policing that sort of changed my life. So the chapter, I'm happy you called out the problem of the police in, in, that, in the book, uh, has some of the research that we had that like really changed the way I thought about the world. You know, like I didn't know that there was literally a different system of justice. when we were in the street Four years ago in Ferguson, I just had no clue. I just didn't know that that was how it was, but but that is real, you know?
0: Yes. So it does strike me that you could do all sorts of activism and you were living a life. You weren't called an activist, but to be an educator and an yes. educator in the schools that you were in is an activism. But when you take on or tackle the problem of policing, then you, you necessarily have to start getting into conflict in a way where uh, you could be doing great things for so many people and it's nurturing in the schools when you're dealing with uh, the police and those kind of power structures. It's conflict. Were you ready to go? Did you have all the tools to uh, lead a life of conflict having come from a life of, you know, nurturing and building up people?
1: Uh, no, you know, it was like a, literally when I went to St. Louis uh, for the first time, like on August 16th, I literally was like, you know, I'm going to go see with my own eyes, right? That like, I saw it on, I saw the protests on CNN. It looked like the protesters were, were wild. I saw it on Twitter, it looked like the police were wild. I was like, I'm just going to go. I'm going to go see with my own eyes. And and I went. The second night I was in St. Louis was the first night that I was tear gassed. And it was like, wow, this is, I- I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure nobody ever has to experience this. So I would say we all, you know, I'm mindful of one of many people. I would say we all learned a lot. Four years ago, we were, people didn't support us. People told us this wasn't the way to do it. People were really unkind about the way that we were engaging in the work. Uh, so we had to learn a lot. and I, And I did learn a lot. And I think about the data in that chapter on policing, you know, we over the the past three years have learned so much more about policing than we knew four years ago.
0: Did you find it hard to be so confrontational or did you find a different way of uh, kind of channeling the skills that were necessary in your current job, which was activism.
1: You know, I am marvel that confrontation shows up differently. So when I was achieving the capital, when I'm in school systems, the way I'm sort of challenging the superintendent or challenging principals or teachers is just different. When I'm in the street, it's just like a whole different game, right? Like yeah. we are, we're sort of, it's either we might be yelling or we might be using Twitter or we might be like being really aggressive. And I think that what I learned in protest was how to tell tight messages, like how to have messages that could be repeated. You know, right. I had one of the big platforms really early, and it was in service. It was about, like, making sure people were at the right places. That I was, like, telling the protester side of the story because, you know, if not for Twitter,
0: Missouri would have tried to convince you that we didn't exist in the first place. So, like, right, right. that was sort of different. Right. So when you're a school administrator uh, and you have a message, people have to listen to you to some degree. And it doesn't matter that it goes viral. There's no such thing as being essentially the HR director uh, for the Minneapolis public schools. But what about the idea of stakeholders? So I'm sure when you're a teacher sure you can't really be dictatorial as an activist you can't be dictatorial but my question is how often do you think it's wise to try to convince the police and the powerful people to buy into your programs as opposed to confronting them and saying you know you're doing it wrong and of course you're going to object and we don't give a damn about that
1: so some of this is uh I think common sense, right? Like, it is—I don't know what a good defense is for destroying police officer disciplinary records. I just, like, don't—like, I've not heard anybody yeah. tell me something yeah. that, like— And is, since you're
0: a good messenger, that's why you say it in almost every interview, because the regular person says—they immediately identify with their own life, and they go, that wouldn't happen to me, that seems wrong.
1: Yeah, you're like—or, like, could you imagine if, like, if somebody hits your kid, and then you're like, have they hit other kids, and they're like, can't talk about it. Right. you're like, right. uh, you'd be like— No! Like, and like, imagine that, like, even if they couldn't tell you that the principal literally had no way of knowing, Mm -hmm. you'd be like, that's just not safe, right? So some of it is like common sense. When we talk to the police about that, they're cagey and they just sort of say, we deserve these protections because policing is hard. And that's just something we don't agree about, right? Like, that's just like not, we don't agree.
0: The first half, that they don't deserve the protections. There is a policing is hard argument that's legitimate.
1: Yeah, We'd say, like, a lot of things are hard. Teaching's hard. Firefighters yeah. are hard. Like, uh, policing is not actually one of the most dangerous jobs in the country. Like, garbage workers, are, like, that. Like it can't—the profession being hard can't be a sow for no accountability, right? right. That, like,
0: a lot of things are That is are hard. true, and uh, what you said about garbage men is true, and I like things that are true, but—and also, you might not care about getting the police to buy in, but if— you're going to say, I'm not, you know, hearing your concern about your life being on the line. I think you're probably going to turn them off and they're not going to listen yeah, to the rest of Yeah, but it's about so
1: what's interesting about the data is that the data actually— uh, when we look at 911 calls, it's like 10% or less are
0: actually things of, like, trauma and conflict. So, right. like, this idea
1: that the police are like, every call is a bank robbery, like, literally I is just know, not but true. If you, take,
0: if you take five a night and you're on the job for a week, then you get two or three traumatic calls in your work week in a way yeah. that I don't as a podcast Yeah, yeah. Host. I,
1: that is— so that can be true I yeah. don't know the relation I don't know what that means to destroying police officer disciplinary records right
0: exactly
1: so yeah. they but they but it all it becomes one narrative for them so mm-hmm. they're like so we're like there should be accountability they're like well the profession's hard and you're like well I don't that could be true and I still don't know like how that bears into what we're saying about accountability that is what I'm saying right. so you think about like you know Why can't people file anonymous complaints? I don't know what that has to do with you being a hard job. Like, when you think about use of force rules that say that officers, like, don't have to give a warning before they shoot somebody or that they can shoot into moving cars. You're like, I don't, you know, if somebody's driving away from you, I don't, that's not really dangerous for you, right? It might be dangerous for the public in some ways. But, like, what we find is that people are not, like... Uh, it's actually more dangerous for you to, like, drive through neighborhood shooting at somebody than, like, to just let them drive off and get a helicopter yeah. and just, you know, yeah. so, like, I don't... So, a
0: lot of departments chasing a suspect is against regulation, actually. Yeah. yeah. C- why? Because lot, we
1: know not. that, like, it yeah. actually doesn't lead to... You're just, like, inflicting damage on people, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's not helpful. So when we think about, like, working with people across the aisle, it's, like, some of it is, like, we just disagree about things that I think are pretty basic, right? Right. Then there's a, when we say things like, you know, I'm not convinced that we need police in this way, right? That, like, you know, 100 years ago, we were cutting people's arms and letting them bleed out and calling it the best health care we had. That didn't work, right? We're actually spending a ton of money on policing right now, and, like, the outcomes are, you know, in Baltimore, we spend $500 million on the police department. They clear maybe 20% of the, you know, it's not like
0: it's not Mm -hmm. like we're getting
1: this incredible return on investment so the question is like could we spend that money somewhere else and like I want to believe that we can so when we start talking about like not having the police potentially or like thinking about different ways of ensuring safety and community that's when you know it it becomes a little more contentious but I'm always down to talk to people you know I had a conversation with one officer and we're talking about force and she was like DeRay but people do bad things are you saying that the police should never kill somebody and I said to her like tell me tell me the circumstances where the police would be able to kill your child like tell me what that is you know like And then she's
0: like, I don't know. It's like, well, I don't know either, right? I think sometimes we have that debate, and it's a good debate about good shooting or bad shooting. And what you've suggested there is we really shouldn't think of anything as a good shooting. But it's too late once it comes to the point, and you could prove that the police rationally did think that flash of metal was a gun. Or the guy did have a gun on him, and maybe he drew it, or maybe he didn't. And, you know, we're reasonably sure the gun wasn't planted. The better discussion is... You know, why do we go about policing with all the police armed with guns and drawing their guns as a, you know, first or second reaction? They say that there are protocols for when to draw, but those protocols are really lenient, especially when compared to other countries. And I don't just mean Scotland. I mean Canada, where a lot of people have guns and it's not as if police shootings are unknown. But in America, we do quickly draw a gun when we perceive... The police quickly draw a gun when they perceive a threat. And then we have this debate about that very moment as as opposed to, you know, the hundreds of hours of training before that moment.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it is... A couple of things. One is that the disparities about how police interact in communities are real. That, mm-hmm. like, that when we look at the data, that they interact in black communities in different ways. You think about even in this wonderful city of New York, is that 90% of the marijuana arrests are people of color, black yeah. and brown people. And you yeah. and I both know that 90% of the people smoking weed in New York City are not black and brown. That, right, that right. is, like, not true. White right? people,
0: black people, and Hispanic pe- people all have been proved to smoke marijuana at the same rates. Yeah. And it's not over 90% right. people of color. Being but the policing is just different, right? Yeah. The
1: second, when we think about the guns is that uh, with the training, we, we did this big analysis of like training hours and police are taught to fire. That's what they spend most of the time on. And then everything else is sort of a wash. It's like de-escalation, negligible. Mm-hmm. Like uh, how to confront people with mental illness, negligible. It's like yeah. you're not actually, they're not actually being equipped even at the best places to like deal with real trauma in communities. And like we know that a gun, it should not be the way that we solve everything, and the third is that there is a question. You know, we did the first ever database of use of force uh, policies across the country. And right. like part of that was looking about, you talk about like they say they have a continuum. Some places don't even have a continuum. Some places are sort of like the officer just uses their judgment. You're like, no, the officer should have to use like the most, the least lethal force first, whether that's a warning or something else before they can even entertain. You know, we even advocate for police officers to have to uh, report every time their gun is drawn, right? Because like, And police are like, well, that would be a lot of paperwork. It's like, well, how often are you drawing your gun? Like, how often are you pointing your gun at people? That seems like, you know, like that shouldn't be like an everyday occurrence where you're like just pointing your gun at somebody.
0: But in New York City, tell me if you think New York City does it better. They document at least every time a gun is discharged. And it's shockingly low. I think most people would be shocked to find out that it's something on the order of 20-something a year. So I think we'd have
1: questions about whether the data is like accurate, but it's good that the rule exists. Uh, New York has some interesting problems around like New York has banned chocolate. Cold, for instance, mm-hmm. right, uh, Eric Garner uh, died. Yeah. And what the NYPD said is that that wasn't a chokehold because in New York City, strangleholds are not banned. And a stranglehold is like a chokehold is like the air the airway. A, str- a stranglehold is like a, a the carotid artery or whatever. Uh-huh. And you're like, that's sort of tomato, tomato. I, I
0: saw it look like a chokehold right. to me, right?
1: Right. So try. To and by it. the way, if
0: you angle your elbow slightly differently, it goes from a chokehold to a stranglehold, and there's no video right. that's not HD that's going to show what you're right. doing. Yeah.
1: So like that is uh, so that's one. The other thing that we know now is that, um, and there are people doing really good research on this is uh, that the body camera companies actually make the footage intentionally not clear. Mm -hmm. So the companies that are the biggest makers of of them, Taser, the the company formerly known as Taser, is like very pro-police. They're like made by former law enforcement. (laughs) So so they intentionally don't make it high quality and their rationale is that they don't want it to be better than the human eye. Mm. And you're like, no it's a camera like we know it's a camera it's supposed to, it's supposed to help us see so they want it yeah. they actually want it to they want the footage to allow you to be like oh that might have been a gun and you're like this, the game is rigged right so part of our work and part of what I try to write in that chapter on the policing is like pulling back the layers for
0: people okay let me ask you about a couple things other than policing let's go back to Ferguson if I were to ask you when you were there let's look ahead to 2018 and Ferguson's a city that's you know, close to 70 percent African-American, but they had six members of city council. Only one was white and a white mayor. Now I think they have three black members of the city council, but the mayor keeps getting elected. And turnout is really low. You know, the mayor got less than 2000 votes. Would, would that have surprised you?
1: Yeah, you know, I knocked doors uh, in Ferguson for the elections right after. Uh, the first wave of protest ended. And, you know, I think that I think that it's hard. There are a lot of communities uh, in that region and across the country that have been disenfranchised for so long that they've lost faith that, like, change is even possible because, like, you've never seen change happen before. And I think that that is, like, a part of it. And, you know, the government in Ferguson, and you can read that in the DOJ report, has terrorized that community for so long, you know, yeah. like, sticking dogs on people. Like, people are just, like... There, you know, it's just like a hard—it's hard. I think it is changing. I like,
0: and the African-American community is more transient. But if this book is, you know, a case for hope— What's the hope there?
1: Yeah, I would say that, you know, the case for hope, I think about hope is a belief that our tomorrows can be better than our today's, and I think that that is real. I think that that's, like, a powerful thing. I think that hope is the fuel for us when we're in the street. You know, I I think a lot has changed, especially under the Trump administration. I think about when I ran for mayor, you know, it was interesting because people were like, I was a sellout for wanting to be a part of the system. How dare I do that? Uh Now it's like, if you don't run for office, you're a sellout, right? Like, there's so many people running. It's like, I remember BuzzFeed ran a national news story being like, um... Ray McKesson holds fundraiser in New York City as if I could only raise money in Baltimore you're like there just isn't that much you know I'm not taking money from developers or PACs so like there's just not that much money in Baltimore to raise I gotta like figure whereas now like people are drawing fundraising parties all over the country for people and it's like a normal thing right so I think that some of that has shifted I do think we also have to be um, more diligent about the way we talk about voting the voting isn't the answer uh, writ large right that I voted my entire life I got dragged out of police department I got shot at by rubber bullets I hit it hot and like voting wasn't the thing that was going to save us. It is one of the tools that we need in the toolbox, though, right? That, like, we need to vote. We need to run for office. We need to uh, push people from the outside. We need to stay in the street. Like, all of those things have to be a part of the equation. That is the only way that we'll get to the other side of freedom.
0: DeRay McKesson is a co-founder of Campaign Zero, which we haven't even mentioned, but I want to because it's directed actions to take. Um, His excellent podcast is Pod Save the People, and his new book is On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope, Great to meet you, Dere. Thank you. And now the spiel. The subtext to a lot of what I talk about on the gist is determining this question. Is this a real problem or is this an exaggeration? My first job in journalism was, my first full-time job in journalism, was at the show on the media. And looking back, I came to realize this, media criticism really falls into two categories. One is, this is a problem, a real problem that's being undercovered, or two, this is not really a problem, and it's being overcovered. Is it a real problem, or is it an exaggeration? I find I consistently fall into the, this is an exaggeration camp. I don't find necessarily that most things are an exaggeration. But when I get engaged in media criticisms, it's to point out, let's all calm down. There's a little bit of an exaggeration. Not everything is DEFCON 1. Yes, Hurricane Florence is about to hit the Carolinas. But why is no one talking about Hurricane Carolina about to hit Florence? That's undercovered. What I'm saying is that the media has covered, I don't know, 22 of the last three hurricanes. But when it came to the one that actually killed 1,400 people, Maria... A lot less coverage than it deserves. Odd, that, no? Ebola in America was covered like a runaway plague. Death toll, two, two Americans. It was a runaway plague in Africa. A lot less coverage. Crime gets covered a lot, even though crime is near all-time lows. The suicide rate increasing significantly in an advanced nation experiencing pretty good economic times. That's hardly covered at all. Anxiety. Is the dominant mood in America today. It is our signature feeling. Anxiety has woven itself into the zeitgeist, and I am convinced it's due to some rational reasons and lots of irrational ones. And I think the consequence of all this overcoverage, of all this worrying about things not to be worried about, is anxiety. Anxiety is the dominant mood, it is our signature feeling. Anxiety has woven itself into the zeitgeist. And I'm convinced it's due to some rational reasons and lots of irrational ones. And when I point out in the abstract that we have created perfect anxiety-making machines, in fact, we carry them in our pockets every day, that social media couldn't have been better designed to give us anxiety and to make us aware and oppressed by this constant threat matrix, people agree with me. Good point. I acknowledge that. Yes, I should lay off Twitter a little bit. It makes me anxious. So, stipulated, social media increases our anxieties irrationally. Yet whenever I try to argue about a specific perceived threat, oh no, not that, that one's real. Sure, yes, I know, social media, I'm worried about everything, but what, I'm not supposed to worry about H1N1? Yeah, but come on, toxic stress, that's real, and what am I going to drink, unorganic milk? And you raise good points about Twitter, but have you seen what happened in the Swedish elections, slash that murder in Iowa, slash North Korea? It's like we've been told the magician's secrets, it's a gagged pen, it's a marked deck, and we say, oh sure, yeah, that's how they do it, but still, it's magic. I was listening to a podcast, a good one. No, that's the name of the podcast. Good one. Jesse David Fox interviews comedians about a specific joke. And this episode was with Aperna Nanchurla, past guest of The Gist. She's great. And she has anxiety humor because she has anxiety. Here's a taste of that. I, I actually find it weirder to not have anxiety than to have it. Because I feel like if you're not scared, you're not paying attention. You know? <laughs> If you opened a newspaper today and you skim the headlines, you're just like, seems cool. It's like, what? Everything's on fire! Are you kidding me? Now that laugh that you hear, that was a laugh of recognition because the crowd is with her. Yes, the world is on fire, but the thing is, the telling of that joke was in 2012 or 2013, way before Trump had even descended the escalator. You could argue, oh, it's only gotten worse since then, but I bet if you ask a lot of people who are sitting with anxiety. Hey, would you trade the current situation for 2012 or 2013, the world situation, I mean? They'd say, oh yeah, 2013 was much calmer, much better, much less Trump, much less anxious. The truth is, you'd never feel less anxious. Actual circumstance, except for wars and big recessions, they don't really make you feel anxious. Well, there is one circumstance that makes you feel anxious, that circumstance that defines how you take in all the troubles of the world or all the exaggerated troubles of the world. And let me be clear about this. I'm not blaming anyone for their anxiety. It's not about blame and it's natural and feelings are feelings. But I do find that people experience anxiety will often say what Aparna said. Well, have you looked at the world? check out the state of the world. Yeah, I've checked out the state of the world. It is better than it's ever been compared to the rest of history. And yet, as the world's getting better, anxiety's going up. I read this in Vox today. Anxiety is already the most common mental health disorder in the U.S., affecting 18.1% of Americans and nearly a third of Americans over their lifetime. It's quickly getting worse among college students. The American College Health Association, found in 2011 half of undergraduates reported they felt overwhelming anxiety by 2017 61 percent did and then the next graph in this vox article perfectly illustrated my argument there are plenty of places to point fingers your phone the president climate change the recession fomo divorce social media student debt terrorism the 24-hour news cycle the economy the economy living further from your family toxins in your gut too many choices too little sleep too little sex okay In that list, the actual factual ones, not the ones based on feelings, but the ones based on extrinsic events like recession and terrorism. Recession is a thing that ended years ago, and terrorism is a thing that is growing less and less virulent every day. You got me on climate change. That's bad and not getting better. The president, again, that one's not good, but student debt? 85% of Americans don't have any student debt, and the ones that do, usually people in their 20s, are the least likely to suffer from that last ailment, which was too little sex. This is called trade-off, people. It's not surprising to me that I've been thinking about all of this on September 11th. And sometimes I blow past the fact that it's September 11th, but this September 11th was a Tuesday, just like the September 11th in 2001. And by the way, because a leap year, the next Tuesday, September 11th, won't be till 2029. And the attacks of September 11th were anxiety producing. Literally, they rationally warranted anxiety. There was a real threat, which was very scary. And there was so much unknown about that threat, which was super scary. But in the 17 years since, we've combated terrorism well, we've handled the costs of combating terrorism less well, but we have less to be anxious about from a factual level. But we're more anxious. I believe it is because that right about the same time that we began wrestling our justifiable fears of terrorism to the ground, we invented and disseminated the perfect anxiety inducing machines that I'm talking about. When I talk about anxiety, people hear it in ways that I don't, I don't mean they hear Your feelings are illegitimate. No, feelings can't be illegitimate. Or they hear, whenever I try to put scary threats into context, they say, oh, you're saying we have nothing to worry about. I'm not saying that. Or they say something like, oh, easy for you to say. You're a rich, comfortable, white, cisgendered man without college debt who literally has a genetic predisposition not to experience anxiety and also has a full head of hair who doesn't suffer from too little sex. Well, mostly right, but not all. But I'm not saying any of those things. And I'm not saying it because of who I am. I'm saying it because of what I see. I'm not saying anxiety is in the mind of the perceiver. I am doing one thing here. I am pointing finger at the main culprit, the undercredited culprit. It is less the phenomena of the world and more the instruments we use to perceive the world, the whole wide world, all the trouble in the world. So to combat anxiety, let's do this. Let's put the phone away. Let's unsubscribe from The Hill's Twitter feed. I'm not saying get off all the Twitter, but pick one feed that's not essential, that's quite sensational. I'm going for The Hill. Spend some time conversing with people who mean a lot to you face-to-face. And do what I do. Acquire a genetic predisposition not to experience anxiety. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader. They prefer blueberry bagels with blueberry cream cheese, roast beef tomato, and a stick of chewing gum. It's available at the stage deli as the Violet Beauregard. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, wonders if Andrew Cuomo will one day get his own EGOT, which is an Emmy, a Grammy, and campaign donations bundled in an LLC run by a guy named Oscar and a guy named Tony. The Gist. We're betting Andrew Cuomo actually earns a Margo, which is a Grammy, an Oscar, a Tony, and getting to name a bridge, Mario. de um, depuru du peru, and thanks for listening.